Sorry about that, Renee. Where are you? Here. Renee has trained us all in the Netherlands. Oh, oh. All. <laughs> so thank you, Guy, um, especially for not setting the bar too high in this absolutely non-intimidating venue. <laughs> Very thoughtful of you. You know, when I was drafting this speech, I remembered a story about Marco van Basten. I'm not sure you all know him, but he was a world-renowned football player. Uh, that came on the radar as a candidate for the position of assistant coach at Ajax Amsterdam, which is a football club, uh, after his active career. But the manager at the time wasn't really jumping for joy when this appeared in the media. Because, as he said, a good racehorse isn't necessarily a good jockey. Now, since I've been to a few of these conferences in the past, I know that this horse-jockey comparison isn't true of many speechwriters, including some of my speechwriting friends from the Netherlands, so thank you, Brian, for inviting me to speak and giving me the opportunity to show my face amongst my peers again. And of course, thank you all for being here. I don't know about you, but when I first came to this conference, it was wonderful to meet so many kindred spirits and fellow wordsmiths. I wouldn't say that speechwriting is a lonely profession, far from it. But to our policy-making, political or corporate colleagues, we are, of course, a bit of an anomaly. Lonesome strangers in the dark, the people who can actually write. <laughs> so it's great fun to be in the, in the majority once in a while. And since we're among trusted friends, I'll let you in on a little personal secret. I must confess, I've never wanted to be a speechwriter in the first place. <laughs> As a history graduate with a huge interest in 20th century Dutch politics, all I ever dreamt of as a student was becoming an important historian. But as we all know, life is what happens to you and you know the rest. So after a few years in academia, I ended up as a copywriter at an agency where I was when in 2002, I responded to a newspaper ad without giving it much thought. And I suddenly found that I was a speechwriter at the Ministry of Water Management and Infrastructure. Since then, I've written speeches for four cabinet ministers, three junior ministers, one crown prince who is now our king, and two prime ministers, liberals, labor, Christian Democrats, and even one right-wing populist who was a classic conservative deep in his heart. <laughs> Lucky for me. Here they all are. You might recognize one or two. And that is not, that's not our queen, bottom, bottom right. And I'll let you in on another secret. I've never voted for any of them. <laughs> True. In the Dutch civil service, this is not uncommon. It's not strange. It's just how the system works. To be precise, I now work for Mark Rutte in his capacity as prime minister and not for Mark Rutte as leader of his party, which he also is. Now, you could argue that this makes my professional life potentially a lot less interesting, especially at election time. <laughs> 
fair point. But luckily, there is a large grey area, and in terms of job security, you can't beat it. <laughs> Anyhow, it has allowed me to be a speechwriter in the civil service for some 15 odd years now. I think many of us share the same experience that speechwriting is not something you dream of as a child. Being a speechwriter is not the same as being a fireman, a football player, a game developer, an astronaut, a ballet dancer or a princess. It's not a career many people actively pursued from a very young age. Of course, there are a few exceptions and they're called Thomas and Emma and Guy, of course. But for most speechwriters, I know it is something that at a certain point in their life just came by and happened to them. I always like to quote Ted Sorensen, who called himself unbelievably green when he started out as speechwriter to JFK. I had no political experience, he said. I'd never written a speech. I'd hardly been out of Nebraska. And then Ted Sorensen went on to become an icon to our profession, of course. So to all you fellow excellent speechwriters, we are in good company. Now having said that, I have never regretted writing that letter to the Ministry of Infrastructure, because ours simply is the best trade there is. <laughs> if only because it makes our mothers proud. Speechwriting has that scent of mystery, of spin doctrine, of being behind the scenes, a bit of scheming and living in the fast lane even. You probably all know this meme that I think reflects the public perception that people have of what we do, as well as the far less glamorous reality of our professional existence, seen bottom right. We've heard a few examples already this morning. I have a few for myself. Now, 15 years and an estimated 2 million words later, I really checked it. What have I learned so far? What does it take, in my view, to become a reasonably successful speechwriter in the civil service and to stay one for some time. Of course, it takes good writing skills, reading a book once in a while, curiosity, a sense of humor, and watching House of Cards. <laughs> I'm a House of Cards fan. I, I'm less a West Wing fan, I'm sorry. But those are only the basics. If you're a shitty writer who doesn't know a good story when it's staring you in the face and deadlines make you nervous, please find something else to do, of course. But when all the ba basics are in place, what else? One thing that to me is absolutely key is that we speechwriters should claim what's rightfully ours, perhaps a bit more often and a bit more vigorously. <laughs> we are not rocket scientists. We're not the people who are going to change the future with a scientific breakthrough in high temperature, high temperature superconductivity or the Higgs boson particle. I don't even know what it is. But history shows conclusively that we should never underestimate the power of words. And as it happens, that's our field of expertise. The problem is everybody can write, technically speaking. You know, like everybody's a football expert when the national team is playing. And everybody's Dr. Google when they're ill. <laughs> so let me tell you what happened when we had a correspondence dinner in the Netherlands two years ago. It was an old promise made by the Prime Minister to a former Dutch-US correspondent. 
and he made it on national TV, so there was no escape. But of course, there was a 100% risk factor. The whole idea of all those underdressed and skeptical Dutch journalists renting a tuxedo and paying good money to laugh at pre-cooked jokes from the Prime Minister in a live television show felt awkward from the beginning. It's just not Dutch, you know. <laughs> it's not. And to make it even worse, here he is again, Barack Obama himself was the benchmark, so anything less than brilliant would be a failure. It would be an understatement to say that the pressure was on from the start. As the Prime Minister himself kept saying, I've kept saying, I feel like a rabbit caught in the headlights of a fast approaching car. And since we were in completely unknown territory, it was only logical to call in the help of a few stand-up comedy comedians and comedy writers, as they traditionally do in Washington, I believe. Some people at the ministry even hinted at hiring specialists to do the job from scratch. But to me, it was clear from the beginning that it would be unwise to lose the initiative. I wanted to stay in charge as the head writer. Now, you could say there was an element of misplaced professional pride in this. <laughs> I won't deny it. <laughs> but I was also convinced that the PM's stand-up performance should be more than a bunch of scripted jokes anyone could tell. It had to be a text close to his character, close to his political ideas and close to his professional surroundings. I once learned from a London professor in classical rhetoric that at its core, ghostwriting is not about one story or the next. It's about building character for somebody else over time and that takes stamina and involvement from people close by, people like us. And perhaps this is even more true when your speaker leaves his comfort zone as mine did. So this is what I did. About two months before D-Day, I sent an email to some 15 of my colleagues and a few party staff members with a challenging request to spam my mailbox with all kinds. So I approached the inner circle. Um, and jokes of all kinds, of intellectual ones. Side splitters, of course, tongue-in-cheek remarks, self-ridicule and lots of it and at least one joke that was so obnoxious it would never make the final version. <laughs> that request, especially the last one of course, did not fall on deaf ears. <laughs> I was buried under lots of brilliant and less brilliant material that I molded into a first draft and then a second before I started working with my new two comedy friends. And let me say immediately, kudos and credit to both, both of them. Comedy writing is a craft as well. But you can imagine the look on their faces when I told them, okay guys, here's a bunch of bureaucrats' jokes to work with. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, they were pleasantly surprised and they were kind enough to say so. I think that in the end, 70 or 80% of the final speech came from my initial request. And it's fair to say that we polished it to perfection as a team. And then, of course, the Prime Minister nailed it at high noon, which in this case was at 8.30 p.m. on primetime television. It really was a massive success. So now everybody's waiting for an encore, but that's another story. <laughs> My point is that 
we speechwriters should in every case claim the ground that's ours. We are the head writers. And there's another thing I believe is important. We should pick our fights carefully. We speechwriters are all about style and effect. Our focus is, of course, on maximizing the power of words. That's all we have. So we juggle with reason and emotion. We come up with metaphors and frames and analogies. We aim to please and we hope to surprise. And we are constantly on the lookout for a smile or a tear or both, which is even better. But we are surrounded by Sir Humphreys. <laughs> As always, Sir Humphrey is always good, isn't he? <laughs> Very senior, high-ranking officials, political assistants, special advisors, diplomats, policy experts on every conceivable subject, you name it. And they are all looking over the speechwriter's shoulder as he or she drafts his next masterpiece. They're usually people with strong opinions and great authority. People who do not like risks and hit the brake whenever they see one. So, I think we all recognize that there's always a black hole lurking somewhere, ready to suck up every rhetorical treasure we come up with. <laughs> and let's be honest, if you put two speechwriters together, this is often a topic, a topic of conversation. Well, if you put 90 together, it's a topic of conversation. But I don't think we should complain too much. Let me give you two real-life examples of how I've, uh, how I've dealt with this issue in the past. A few years ago, the Prime Minister had to deliver a speech at the national commemoration of the downing of Flight MH17, in which 298 people died. Uh, 196 of them were Dutch. It was another of those pressure cooker moments. Live on national television, in a large hall, shimmering with the grief of families in mourning. Some of them still waiting for their loved ones to come home in a coffin. It was the worst conceivable moment to make a mistake or strike the wrong note, of course. We started preparations weeks before with the Prime Minister asking me every single day if there was a first draft yet. And that showed that for him, it was, without a doubt, the most difficult speech he'd ever had to deliver. So once again, no pressure. When I came up with a draft that was rhetoric all over, full of big emotions and strong images, one of my most senior colleagues asked if it was not too lacrimose. Wasn't it over the top? Too sentimental? And he was absolutely right to raise the question because on paper it was sentimental. But speeches aren't read, they're listened to. And I was absolutely convinced that this was what the occasion called for. So when I made my point in the Prime Minister's office and I said that it all came down to an excellent performance, something unexpected happened. The Prime Minister looked at me and said, OK, you show me how. You show me excellent. And I somehow managed to do so on the spot, convincingly. But I assure you, it was a steep five-minute learning curve. Luckily, it paid off when the speech was delivered, and again afterwards, because these are also the moments in which trust and confidence be between speaker and speechwriter are built. Only recently, I had a much more humbling experience 
when we were preparing the Prime Minister's speech on the future of the European Union, which he delivered almost six weeks ago in Berlin. You may have heard about it, I hope you've heard about it, because it did cause something of a stir internationally, and that was exactly as intended. And although the speech turned out a success, I totally underestimated it at the beginning. I was quite pleased with myself about the first draft, which I wrote without consulting too many people. I felt I had succeeded in presenting a few general messages in an attractive rhetorical manner, and that that was it. Job well done. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> As it turned out, this was one of those stories that fits the Peggy Noonan rule that speeches aren't magic and that there's no great speech without great policy. The Prime Minister really wanted to set out a detailed policy agenda. So content was king over style this time. And the final version called for lots of in-depth knowledge of many European policy dossiers. It called for fine detail that I don't have at my fingertips. So this is when you put up, you know, when you don't put up too much of a fight, but bow your head and acknowledge the expertise of those in the know. <coughs> but to be totally honest, I'm afraid I'm an open book and I did resist and grumble a bit until the Prime Minister in his own friendly way laughed in my face and said, you really hate this, don't you? So that was yet another learning experience. And since it's confession time today, I might as well show you this picture. I'll give you some time to let it sink in. It's really true. The second from the left. That's me. <laughs> For many years, I was in this sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say the word, not too serious band that sang popular Dutch folk songs in an over-the-top ironic way. <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm afraid it's a bit of a Dutch phenomenon and hard to explain, but I will try. Think German schlagers, but then in Dutch and often much more sentimental. Think a heartbreaking repertoire with songs about a mother crying over the empty crib of a dead child. Think drowning puppies and impossible love stories. Then double it, and that was us, <laughs> the infamous Palombos. It really started out as nothing more than a student joke, but it got totally out of hand. <laughs> so for almost 15 years, we were on the stage with varying degrees of success, I must say, and it all stopped around 2005. Now, why am I showing you this picture? Besides that, I like the element of surprise. <laughs> you were surprised, admit it. <laughs> It's because I believe that when you're a speechwriter, the floor is not yours. This conference being the exception, of course. We are there to make our bosses shine. It's not about us. And in the unlikely event that it is, there's a real danger that we'll become less effective. Of course, it's no secret that we exist. I remember all too well how in the Netherlands, the media and the public became aware of our existence when John Favreau uh, became world famous in that first Obama campaign, only 27 years old at the time. And when you're self-employed, of course, you need to present yourself more publicly and more actively than somebody like me who potentially has a job for life. So that's not the issue. But I do believe that the stories we write are not ours, by definition. 
I do believe that audiences want to feel that a speaker is telling his or her own story and not reading somebody else's out loud. And so I do believe that a speechwriter with a modest ego and a talent for invisibility <coughs> is an asset to every speaker. Or to give you another uh, one of my favorite Ted Sorensen quotes, if a man in high office speaks words which convey his principles and policies and ideas, and he's willing to stand behind them and take whatever blame or therefore credit that go with him, the speech is his. So here's my quote. My secret life as a singer got out. My friend Jack, the guy in the middle, went to school with this journalist who, when a new government takes office, maps out the 100 people in the PM's professional network in the national news magazine. And when Jack and I met with this journalist, by coincidence, at a reception last autumn, Jack talked too much. And the next thing I knew, I was being portrayed as the singing speechwriter, even though <laughs> that persona really is a person from the past. Just a few weeks ago, in the wake of the Berlin speech, it came back to haunt me when another journalist repeated the story on a political radio show. So I'm afraid this story is now in my scrapbook forever, and I can only hope it wears off. And I'm sorry, Rene, but there's going to be no community singing tonight. <laughs> I have one last confession to make. It's a short one. People often ask me, what's next? What's your next career move? And honestly, I have no idea. There will probably be another job someday, somehow, somewhere. But what I do know, for sure, is that I'll never have a better one than I have now. You tell me, how many people can read a book or a newspaper and claim that they're working? <laughs> how many people can experience that wonderful feeling of creating something from nothing every single day? And how many people can say that they really made a difference professionally? Not every day, not every week, perhaps not even every month, but once in a while. We can. And therefore, ours really is the best trade there is. Thank you.